Um, so today, in today's teaching, we are <clears throat> jumping into um, kind of a topic here that is, uh, for me, I, I, I mean, it has this strong potential um, to have lots of opinions and things attached to it, but I'm actually really excited. I've had a, maybe an up and down uh, relationship um, with the concept of communion. And we've been talking about this idea of invitation, and we knew that as we talked about invitation, at some point we had to talk about the invitation to the table that, that, that is um, common in historical and orthodox Christianity, right? And so um, what we want to see here is that we're going to look at all of these different various ideas as God asks us to invite Him uh, into His life, uh, or sorry, us to invite Him into our lives, and as He invites us to follow Him, um, we also want to speak about what that means for us as a collective body, what that means to um, invite people into our lives, what it means to invite people not just to our common table together, but also our tables inside of our homes. And so today, um, you might know this as the Lord's table, you might know this as the Eucharist, you might understand this as Holy Communion, maybe just communion as the common table, the agape feast, or the breaking of the bread, um, and as we know it here today, we call it communion. And so, um, we're a church that takes a lot of different expressions, brings them together to find that common ground in the middle, right? So we want to understand that assignment today as we jump into it. Um, and, and in the midst of that, we want to invite other cultures to be represented in this. And so we're going to kind of make a, an announcement just in a shift in the way that we celebrate this, but more as a reason to invite other traditions um, to be present as we celebrate um, this idea of communion. So the, the, the idea, the practice of communion, for me, all right, now put yourself in my shoes. This has always been super, super confusing, okay? I, I'm wondering if you had the same thing, because at times, I think as I started to come to know Christianity, I was thinking you all were making this up and pretending things, right? Like, you, do you all, does this make sense to you, right? When you come in, so think, coming from no context, no understanding of Christianity, having no idea of what any of this stuff was, and then the guy up front says, okay, now let's partake together in eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. What are you talking about? I, I, in that moment, the, like, could you, um, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, like, as I'm looking around the room, nobody is responding in any way that I would think is reasonable to somebody announcing some form of cannibalism from the stage. Why are you not freaking out right now? Why is everyone acting like this is normal? And I'm like sitting in this thing. I lean over. I have a friend to my left. And I remember leaning over. I'm like, what the Hades is going on right now, man? And he's looking at me. And he's like, no, no, no. It's like, it's cool. Um, I'll tell you more about it later. But this is actually something you're not supposed to partake in because you're not a Christian. To which I'm like, well, now I kind of want to take it. I want to see what all these people do when the guy who's not supposed to take it takes it. Which tells you everything you need to know about my personality probably right there in a nutshell. And so as I'm looking at all this stuff, you have to stop and be like, dude, this is kind of weird, right? And there's so many touch points. There's so many things that get referenced in communion. You can look back at all of these things and, 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 and try to think through like, is it a meal? Because it seems like sometimes when you read in here, it's like a full meal. And then sometimes it's like, well, is it, is it just a liturgical practice that we do in, in the mornings on Sunday? Is it a cracker? 
Or is it actual bread? Or is it that flat bread that people in, in the Jewish community will sometimes eat? Is it wine or grape juice? We almost had that as your opening question today. Wine or grape juice? Is it sacred or is it common? How often do we do it? Who can do it? Adults, kids, baptized people, maybe just members of the church, who's allowed to do it? And as you hear it described, it's always going back like it kind of has these nods to the Passover and Exodus. So I'm like, oh, I get it. We're talking about the Passover and Exodus. Then it kind of has these elements of manna in the desert, provisions. Like, wait, is it, is it Exodus or is it the desert moment? Well, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In fact, one of the times that he teaches on it goes right from feeding the 5,000 into this idea of being the bread of life. Well, I can think of all the times, like, so is it the Passover? Is it manna? Is it bread of life? Um, It's at the Lord's Supper, but it's also talked about in Revelation, like this idea of new heavens and new earth. And then there's that really weird part in 1 Corinthians 11 where it says that if you eat or partake of this in an unworthy manner, you could get sick or even die. That's in there. In fact, the first time I ever, when I was a youth pastor way back in the day, the first time I ever taught on this all day long, no joke, anxiety ridden, and I'm like, we're going to do communion tonight. Please, Jesus, don't let one of these kids die on my watch. Jesus, please don't let a kid die tonight. I don't fully know what the unworthy manner thing is, but just don't let him die tonight. Can you see how if you came from nothing, no knowledge of this, it's so incredibly confusing and, and, and then all these Christians just kind of act like they know what's going on. And I'm probably convinced we don't fully know what's going on because it is so broad, it's so large in its scope, there are so many ways to practice it. And so I had no way of really getting my head around it, and that caused for me this relationship with communion, where I was trying to learn all kinds of things about it, and some stuff I loved, some stuff shocked me, some things were like, how did we ever get from that to this? And all of these things kind of caused this moment where even during one situation, for two years I refused to take communion in this version, with the little tiny cup and the cracker. Because I'm like, if this thing's a meal, then this isn't actually even really communion. And I couldn't bring myself in authenticity to actually take this. Now, eventually, I feel like God said, that's probably some legalism that you need to get over. And it wasn't the first time that he told me that. In fact, the first time I ever tasted wine in my entire life. I never drank alcohol my entire life. Not because I grew up as a Christian, any kind of these weird evangelical things, but because there's alcoholism in our family. The first time I ever tasted alcohol was over communion, and I was at a very high liturgical church for, I think it was a Maundy Thursday service, My friend invited me. She was singing. We were hanging out. They come back and like, oh, that's real wine. I know you've never tasted alcohol before. Maybe you should not do this. And God's like, you're going to let your legalism stop you from having communion with me. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, And I really loved that I could tell people I had never tasted alcohol. That was like one of those things I could be like, yeah, never. Nope. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Isn't that so different than the rest of you? So I'm giving up that ability God's confronting legalism in me. He's confronting uh, hubris inside of me. And I tasted alcohol for the first time by taking communion. All of these things that I want us to kind of bring together, and I'm going to just say my agenda from the front end so that you're not trying to figure it out through all of the storytelling. If I have an agenda today, it's that there are lots of ways to observe communion. And we might have some really, really strong preferences in this room about it, but, you can, but we can observe it by looking around at a plethora of traditions, 
seeing what they emphasize, seeing what they look at, seeing all the different ways that they tend to elevate different parts of the beauty of this and learn from each other. But in doing that, you may have to let go of some of the things that you're holding on to so strongly now, some of the traditions that you taught and maybe were crystallized at some point as orthodoxy along the way. So there are traditions who take these things and they pass the plate and they say things to each other, like the bread of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Traditions that offer it daily by ordained priests and they come forward to receive it. And I would have you come forward and hold the cup and maybe you would do intinction where you grab the cracker and dip it in and then put it on your uh, tongue. There are traditions that believe that this practice is attached directly to a meal and the only way to take it is actually to have a meal at a dinner inside of a house and a real table, right? That was me for a while. And some take it yearly like a Seder because it's tied directly to the Passover meal inside of Exodus. And taking a look at this kaleidoscope of different ideas and perspectives, I think the gravity of some of the practices, just, just for me, I understand this isn't a salvation issue, this isn't a hill to die on, but it is so important. This is one of the few things Jesus tells us that we're supposed to continue doing. If you know who Jonathan Edwards is, he's a famous theologian. He got fired from his church, I think, after serving for 30 years. They had a disagreement on communion, and they all voted, I think, 90%. You're done, bro. Get out of here. There's a, there, there, there's a, a weight to this sometimes um, that I think is either, either the challenge is we're not thinking highly enough of it, so let's maybe elevate that, or times that maybe we think too highly of it, and we need to de-emphasize it. And so when we're preaching on this today, um, we do have some, some changes, like I said, for at least the next quarter or so, we're going to not take communion every single week as we have been in our, in our practice, and as the tradition that planted us um, would, have, would have said. Uh, and so um, we may come back to that. That's not like it's a done deal. But the elders, we wanted, uh, and I and, and the pastors, we wanted to um, allow some time to shift some emphasis in this, bring in some other traditions, and to um, ask God what maybe he would want us to do. All right? Um, the best way that I can think of framing this idea of communion is through these three things. And I, and I got a little bit of it up here just so it wouldn't take too much time. And I want you to see we got the history of communion that shapes it. We have the holiness of communion, and I drew this uh, little continuum, this little spectrum, depending on how common you think these elements are or how sacred they are, and you may find yourself anywhere on this spectrum, that's going to then emerge something that I'm going to call components. They might be questions, they might be aspects, it might be that you uh, think of one part of communion over the other, and then I'm just going to kind of, as, a, as a, an example, there, there could be anywhere from one to 100 questions, components, or pieces of this that one tradition might say, this is the most important aspect, and not this. And then that other tradition is like, no, 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 this is the most important practice, and not this part of it. And so all of our ways inside of history, this kind of... Um, the twists and turns of, of the, the context that you live in has shaped the way communion looks. Uh, the practicalities, which maybe we don't always like to admit, they shape the way that we view these things. And then that practicality often gets crystallized into this is the way communion has to be done. We're way more influenced by that than we realize. The holiness and where you fall on this scale when you take these two worlds and squish them together and you start to interact with all the different things that you might believe in here, it plops out all kinds of questions on the other side, like who can serve it? 
Is it serious or is it celebratory? How often do we take it? Is the tone of communion solemn or, or, or is it meant to be like a feast? And I'm going to point out some of the fun facts along the way because I do think there's some fun facts in this. But I'm going to reference these things over and over and at the end come back to some of these components and answer them. But I think in knowing the history and, and kind of the, the idea of mixing in how holy do I think this is or how close to the common elements of, of a dinner table might it be, that will, that will actually answer and clarify these. You can almost say, well, your answer to this will depend on what you think of this and where you landed on this. Well, yeah, your answer to this question will actually just be kind of answered somewhere in the telling of these two things. And so here we go with some I want us to keep in mind that, that we have, um, there's, there's debates and uh, um, all kinds of uh, things that we could have in here, and I'm wanting to, to center us back, and we'll land on this at the end, the unifying communion factor of us coming together as one body to celebrate something very powerful and very beautiful. So the, so the first things first, I want to start at the beginning, but it's kind of the beginning, it's not the full beginning, and you're going to see what I mean by this. So if you have your Bibles with you, the most famous verse uh, attributed to communion is Matthew 26, 26 through 30. And I think I'm actually going to read from 17. I, I tried to shorten it for the sake of time, but I think we need it all the way back to 17. Matthew 26. Oh, oh great. We do have 17. Perfect. All right, so listen up. It says this. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the what? Passover. The Passover. He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Weird situation in the middle of a meal, but all right, Jesus, do plenty of weird things. They were all very sad and began to say to him and one another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Which I kind of like to be, I, I, in, my, in the humor of my mind, I imagine it happening right then. And then Judas is like, No. Uh, he calls him out right in the middle. But it's important to note that he was at the table. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. And here's the more familiar part. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, there are very specific blessings that Jewish people recite over the bread. In fact, they will sometimes, if they don't have time to recite those those blessings, will choose not to eat bread that day, all right, because it's a, a kind of a long liturgical prayer. They broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Okay, so pause really quick. Um, you could already begin dividing up into categories right now in terms of what you want to emphasize in church history and what you think holiness might be inside of this moment, right? You have this idea of traditionally we place the emphasis on a couple of different questions. What meal is happening? What's the Passover meal? There's some debate about that actually, but I think for the most part we all agree he's in the middle of the Passover meal. Is this meal important because it could be any meal celebrated commonly so that at any moment in the day, because you got to eat, 
you could stop and remember Christ. Do you see the beauty of that emphasis? If I think this is a common element, there's always bread and there's always wine at every meal. So we actually have the opportunity to celebrate Jesus at every single meal. That's a great reminder on a regular basis. Or, or is it important to note the meal because it's specifically the Passover meal, and so we're trying to put the emphasis very specifically on the Exodus? And so a Jewish roots perspective would say this is a meal that is meant to be celebrated only once a year at the Passover, kind of like a Seder would be celebrated. Or did Jesus just seem to be making a big deal out of this moment? It's the Last Supper, and he is literally initiating something brand new for this moment. Well, it can't be brand new. Because inside of this history, we already know that it's looking back to, and I'll put a little, uh, that's my, my best pyramid that I've got for you today, this Passover moment where all of these people came out. These are my, the heads that I got here, little stick figure people, but you get the point. All of these people leave Egypt. So we know it has a history that, bre- that, that has a breadth of going all the way back to Exodus, But as you're going to see in just a few minutes, it also has itself stuck into the future. The Passover meal is so important because it's often one of the aspects we forget in the midst of this. So so that's, we've got bread, now we have another element, it's the cup, right? Verse 27 says, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when we drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. A very important statement. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So two things that I want to point out. First is that Jewish people at a Passover meal drank four cups of red wine to remember four different aspects of Exodus. The fourth one being not quite realized because it looks to the future over here. And so what you have is the cup of sanctification revolving around this part in Exodus where God said, I will bring you out. Then the cup of deliverance revolving around the plagues and the judgment, and I'm gonna deliver you. Then the cup of redemption or blessing, and I'm gonna redeem you. They get out of Egypt, but this last one, the cup of praise, hope, tends to have this connotation of the kingdom of the future, the restoration of all things. I will take you for my people. And when Jesus recites that, he is actually offering up this new, he's parlaying the the emphasis of that into this new kingdom idea that we're going to see in just a second that's kind of like this giant banquet table. And I can't go to the end because it's infinite, right? It goes all the way, I don't know, whatever, however you want to see that. And imagine people just lined up. Now, I don't know if it's going to be one long giant table. That's a giant, giant table. God has all the resources in the world. But we have these two worlds suspending communion in the middle of it. The history of Exodus and remembering, but also Jesus saying that at this fourth cup, we're actually going to tie this to it. He does so by using a vow. Did you catch that? I don't know why Jesus went out of his way to do that. He says, I tell you, I'm not going to drink any wine again until that day when it comes. Now, maybe he knows he's not going to have an opportunity between now and when he dies. But what he's doing, again, is that he is connecting this idea. Think of this vow like we do today just to bring emphasis to something. Like, believe me, like, like I, I, I swear to you this is true. That means that what I just said, I'm trying to emphasize, like it's true. It's not just true. I swear to you it's true. 
on, on, on my mother's, you know, whatever, you could bring these things in, right? Gen Z, right? On God, this, this is happening. So Jesus has got this thing. He said, I will not eat any such and such thing until this happens. And he says, wine, until the kingdom of heaven comes, the new heavens and new earth. So he's emphasizing it. He's using these cups that are creating this sort of timeline, leaving the last one open. In fact, often during Passover, they don't drink that last cup as a way of saying, we haven't yet realized that. But that cup will be drank drunk will be uh, partaken of with all of you in this banquet table, new heavens and new earth. So in this moment, Jesus is suspending this thing between these two things. We have an ultimate Passover meal. We often call it the great banquet table. When the Lord, this is Isaiah, when the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Amen. When the Bible had promised this unending supply of, of, of wine in Amos 9, 13 through 14. So not only that, but it's endless in its ability to be partaken of. And when Revelations tells us then that we are going to see in attendance every people, language, and nation at this place. This is just the beginning, y'all. Think about all that we bring to the table when we celebrate communion. Now, now I say, what, one of the things that I want us to note here is um, you can't. For, for the most part, none of us think of Passover when we take communion, correct? You can't remove it from the context of Passover. It framed everything that Jesus was doing. He was directly referencing the Passover when he happened uh, to be doing this, when he initiated or inaugurated the communion practice. He's tying it to all of these various symbols, not just to Exodus, but throughout the Old Testament. And we have all of the Old Testament history weighting this idea. And so I would say it's essential for us to understand how the Passover is tied into that. In fact, we don't even understand what we're doing when we take communion without it we tend to forget it. We're so caught up in our historical placement that we forget that this has it, and Jesus just told us that. Now, the next plotting point, and I'm going to move kind of quick in this just for the sake of time. The next plotting point is when we venture into Acts 2. Jesus inaugurates it. Then after he passes away, we have that first generation of church leaders hanging out together. And Acts 2 says this, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of what? It says bread. Wait, wait, go back, go back. It says bread, but the Greek actually says the breaking of the bread. That's important. I'll come back to you and tell you why. They were breaking bread to, uh, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property, possessions, and gave anything they had to anyone who was in need. Every day they continued. Every day they continued. How often? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and if you forgot it, there's lunch as well. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. It's like uh, the writer of this is one of those awesome youth pastors. He's like, there's going to be pizza and all kinds of crazy things, but there's pizza. And I tell you, we're going to have pizza. Like everyone show up because there's going to be bread and food at this. It's a great evangelism strategy. Uh, I'm going to read a quote to you from a guy named Frank Viola. For the early Christians, the Lord's Supper was a festive communal meal. 
The mood was one of celebration and joy, and when believers first gathered for the meal, they broke the bread and passed it around, and then they ate their meal, which then concluded after the cup was passed around. The Lord's Supper was essentially a Christian banquet, and there was no clergyman to officiate. So it was originally this really joyful time. How many of you take communion and throw up your hands and say, woohoo, or cheers, or I don't know. It's almost always solemn and quiet and reflective. So it's originally this joyful time. They got together not even weekly, but daily, at least weekly, wherein the extended household, all of their oikos, would gather and share a full meal. It was a fun event. It was like a family reunion. Your favorite foods were probably there. You used the bread and the wine to focus in on Christ. You encourage each other. They would often tell stories of what God had done through the week, getting help. Like, how would you tell this person's trying to, they're asking me questions about Jesus and I'm not even sure how to answer them. How would you answer this, Peter? Peter's like, oh, Luke, 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 you got to get with this, man. All those degrees and it's not helping you one bit in this situation. And so they're having these conversations, encouraging each other. They've been beat up throughout the week, maybe literally, right? They're prophesying over each other, it tells us. They tell testimonies of what God has done. So the first question I have for us is how do we know that this meal was communion at all? You could read that Acts and just be like, I mean, they're just breaking bread. We all do that. Well, that definite article, the, breaking of the bread, tells us that this was talking about communion and communion was present whenever they would do those things. The, the, um, the, and then we have other extra biblical materials that support that as well, talking about the Christians in the early church. The second question is, how did it change from this big joyful meal in someone's living room to a symbolic elements that we use today, often served by clergy only in some services? Well, in the second century, we're talking that next generation or maybe next two generations, the bread and the cup began to be kind of separated from the meal as their own thing, right? Just any kind of practice, you begin to see it evolve through time, and it just slightly changes in one degree, turns into a couple more degrees. And, and what's happening is some believe that the reason for that separation was that they didn't want any unbelievers who are participating in their gatherings to be able to be a part of it because they felt like it was sacred. It would be profaned. That's one speculation. Some believe it was just simply logistics, convenience, which makes way more decisions for us than we're probably likely to admit on a day-to-day basis, right? It just became hard. The church is growing. It's becoming more institutionalized. And so it's like, man, I don't know. We need to maybe just cut that out. I don't know if we have time for that whole meal thing. Let's have these other things going on. So we're going to cut that part out of it. Eventually, the actual meal is reduced to just some symbolic elements. Probably about the fourth century, it was solidified that it was just these kinds of things. The terms breaking of the bread and Lord's Supper disappear, and they're actually exchanged for more formalized words like the Eucharist or communion, um, and then they replace the full meal. That happened gradually, happened over a series of, of time. So a purist would say, meal only. Do you see how you get there? Um, and then maybe if we don't want to necessarily be a purist, but say there's a heart to this that's continuing in different ways and in different um, uh, practices, then you can say, well, I could see that. I'm okay with this right? It's not the exact thing that they were doing, but I get it. We're, we're trying to symbolically bring our hearts and our minds around something. Well, then you have some other questions. What do we do? Like, why, why do we do it in this solemn, reflective tone, right? 
Well, and that question is actually tied into the last thing that Viola said with the clergyman. Um, because what happens is you start to place a little bit higher emphasis on the serious nature of what you're doing, right? And it is serious, but it's also kind of common as well. Where do you fall on this? Once again. And so a higher emphasis is placed on Jesus' death than the resurrection. That's still true today. I didn't realize how hyper-focused we as, um, uh, I would say, I'll just say Protestants in general, are focused on the death and not the resurrection until I had an Orthodox um, uh, professor in seminary uh, who says she's Greek Orthodox, and she was like, why are you guys always so weird and dreary and talking about how sad things are and Jesus' death? You know that he's alive and resurrected, right? And I'm like, do we do that? And she's like, yeah, you ascribe to, and there was a term for it, I can't remember it, it was Christus something, and we ascribe to a theology and an orientation of Christus Victor. So when we celebrate communion, it's joyful. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't realize I had a position by default until I realized there was another position. Amen. So is everything that you're probably going to encounter with Jesus, right? Death is emphasized, and then the serious nature, and we're going to read this, um, 1 Corinthians 11, which talks about the possibility of death and sickness attached to this. If you take it in an unworthy manner, um, it gets amped up to where this is dangerous if you come in with the wrong heart. But let's read it. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm. Did I do them in the following? Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with their own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? There's an equity situation going on. You catch that? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I receive, this is the familiar part, from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this, how often? In remembrance of me. How often? It doesn't tell us. Just do as often as you do, when you do it, at the point when you do it, upon doing this, the emphasis is remember him, not the amount of time you use. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we usually stop there, but it continues. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in a what? Unworthy manner. Will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That does sound pretty serious. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. He's a really nice way of putting, it's it's the Midwestern passive-aggressive way of saying, you're going to die. But if I were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, 
When we are judged in, the way, in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. He comes back to that first accusation, right? That you're separating yourself out and some are eating to their full, some are getting drunk, and some are getting none. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. Like, just eat before you're home if you're going to be that hungry. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Okay, so, so catch the logic. And again, over a period of time, because there's a lot. We talked about this anchor. We talked about this anchor. And now we're dealing with all of the history of the entire church for centuries in the middle of it. And over time, things evolve into new things. And what's happening is they're coming together over a full meal. They're hanging out. And, and, and while this is talking specifically about church members who are dishonoring the supper by not waiting for their poor brethren to eat with them, as well as those who are getting drunk on the wine, you can see how you could possibly apply this to other things, right? Those are specific things mentioned, but I mean, it makes sense. Like when we get together, let's, let's work out our disagreements together. Have I sinned against you? Well, let's do that before we break bread together. You, you can kind of see this reasonable, like you're applying it to any sin, and if you really want to ramp that up, again, there's some reasonableness to it, right? To the extent that you justify some level of self-reflection, but if you really want to amp up the fear on something like this, then you start telling people, hey, like, I saw that thing you did the other day. You're going to take communion? I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be picking up dead bodies after the service. Hey, I mean, that thing you did to me is real messed up. You want to make that right before you drink judgment upon yourself? Now, now start to institutionalize it. Those sins are really rough. You want to make sure you, you pay penance before you go in to take communion? You, 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 you want to really lay on that fear? You can take it way out of context and just point out every tiny little thing. Make it real serious, real solemn. Make a time where you stop and reflect on it. Make sure everyone gets that they're as, as, as off-balance, as dirty of a sinner as they could possibly be. And by the way, you can make that right just by stepping over there and paying the priest to absolve your sins. Now, it's not always that malicious, but we can get there kind of quick as a people. You revolve an entire service around this in an unhealthy way, and you can get a lot of people to do whatever you want before they, on a weekly basis before they take communion. We're going to make sure that we get everyone right and that we get everyone where we want them to be, and we're going to make this so serious that they won't have any choice but to listen to us. So you can see how things like this are used institutionally to um, control. All of this is in process before the third and fourth century. You add in other things like Constantine in the third century where he makes Christianity the state religion and a lot of things change um, in the midst of that. Other biblical ideas of the altar, right? If you have a problem with your brother, drop your sacrifice at the altar. Go deal with that before you come back. That's not talking about communion. But we conflate those worlds. Catholicism solidifies these things along the lines um, of, of their historical kind of I'm proximity. I'm not, I'm not trying to, I know there's Catholics, post-Catholics, um, wherever you find yourself in here, I'm not trying to, um, to, to hate on that. But what I'm saying is they institutionalized some of these things in a very real way so that they became the way to do this stuff. And there's all kinds of baggage along the way. Along with it, the doctrine of transubstantiation, um, I don't have a lot of time to say this, um, 
But I've been in a Catholic service where somebody actually stole one of the pieces of bread and the priest lost his mind in front of the, like it, like, not unreasonably, if you think this is literally the body of Jesus and literally the blood of Christ, he stops in the middle of the service. He's like, that woman who was sitting right there, she was blonde, she took, and I remember he, he, he said she took the body of Jesus and she threw him to the ground. She threw him to the ground. So for whatever she did, she was attempting to kind of perform a kind of sacrilege in front of this priest by throwing it to the ground. And you can see how, you know, if you got this dialed in, you're going to freak out if someone does something like that, all right? Protestants, for the most part, have separated themselves from a lot of those things, but actually this is really just Catholic light, right? We had the meal, then it gets changed into this institutionalized thing, and then we kind of deformalize it a little bit. But really what we're doing here is just kind of a post-Catholic kind of symbolic thing that we have going on here. So what I want to do is to, there, there's so much more inside of this history, right, that we could point to. In fact, uh, uh, one fun tidbit, why do we use grape juice? Well, because maybe wine isn't good for everyone. There's some good legitimate reasons. Did you know that a, a Catholic or a, a Methodist preacher named Welch, that name should be familiar, decided, because he was a part of the anti-alcohol movement of the 1800s, he decided to figure out how to make wine without alcohol. It didn't exist before that. So he pasteurizes it, figures it out, makes a great deal, finds an opportunity, makes a great deal with the Methodists to make this the drink you use, and grape juice does it with the Baptists, does it with a few different people, and now we think grape juice is normal because of somebody's Great deal in the 1800s. Well done, Welch. You did it. What, so what I don't want, again, what, what my hope here, I'm not trying to demonize all of these different moments. Not everything was malicious, but there have been malicious things. There have been opportunists along the way. There have been moments wherein history shaped what this thing looks like to the point that we don't even know what's what. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, is, I don't even know. That's why I stood there for two years. I'm like, I don't even know what's real anymore. I don't know if I believe any of this stuff. And then I just decided to back off for a little while. Two years later, I'm leading worship at a church and someone is so nice and they grab their elements and they put them right in front of me. And I'm standing in front of the whole congregation thinking, I haven't taken this in two years. But some people out there might really freak out if I don't do this right now. And so just for the sake of unity and kind of going along with that, I took it um, in that moment. Um, what I want to do is shake our resolve from some of these things that maybe we thought were permanent and the only ways to do things. We're not demonizing the ideas of serious or solemn. We're going to be serious and solemn at times. We're not uh, uh, demonizing the use of clergy at certain moments, but we won't ever say it's clergy only. We won't ever say you have to use Welch's Concord grape juice. We won't ever say, you, no, no, you have to use a loaf of bread and break it. But we can say, that's a beautiful way of taking communion. Let me try that. Oh, that's a really beautiful way of taking communion. Let's try that one. Oh, wow, I didn't know that you all did it this way. Let's try, oh, in your house churches, take communion together. We have an online resource that helps you to kind of frame all of that stuff. And what I want you to do is to step back once again and, and just kind of appreciate the beauty and creativity of all the different ways that God's people have done this, but we have to know where it came from, right? So we're not just blindly walking into all of these things. So I want you to step back and think about what part of the history 
do you tend to get caught up in? What part of the history do you tend to latch on to? Where do you fall on the spectrum of is this very common or is this something that's meant to be very sacred and solemn, right? Not using it against anyone or pointing the finger from this side to this side. Like you don't think enough heavily, highly enough of communion. Well, you think overly about communion, and we can point fingers all day, but we're all here somewhere. And once you bring these variables together, you start to ask other questions. I'm just going to rapid fire them, and I'm going to give you one last encouragement before we take communion together today. You have this sense of asking the question, well, what is the symbolism? I think the symbolism is already built in, right? The wine or the juice is the blood of Christ. The bread is the body of Christ or cracker or flatbread, whichever way you want to take it. Um, I've been in situations where a bunch of kids on a beach wanted to take communion at the end. And they're like, well, we don't have the stuff to do it. And the pastor's like, grab the chips, grab the Kool-Aid, and let's take communion together. And in that moment, it wasn't about the elements. It was about the heart that these kids wanted to commune with Jesus. What can we use? I I mean, I had a professor once as an Asian man who said, we don't actually have a lot of bread in in our culture. Have you ever thought about putting rice out for communion? My mind blew you all. Like in that moment, I was like, what? But it says bread. But culturally, there needed to be some kind of translation, right? Who can take it? You may, you may want to ask yourself about some of these things. Like, are you coming in with a heart that is an unworthy manner? And I, I don't even have a full definition of that because I think you could appropriately just ask God, Lord, before I take communion, would you just reveal to me if there's anything separating us relationally or, or separating us in the body relationally, right? You could do all of those things. Have that reflective time. Um, and so for that reason, you may want to say for your kids, like, hold on, let's not have communion yet. Maybe some kind of age of accountability that you might want to come up with that you think is appropriate for your kids. Maybe they just don't get it. Um, and for that reason, hey, you don't quite understand this. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe you want to wait till they're baptized. That's up to your discernment. In our family, we, we have it pretty open. Our kids take it because we lean on that kind of common table and it's in a meal situation, Okay. Um, inside of this, you can kind of think of the way that different disciplines um, uh, are gauged, right? If you think about common versus uh, sacred, down here, what you're kind of doing um, is uh, there are certain practices in the Christian walk that are very common. You should be reading your word on a daily basis. You should be praying at all times without ceasing, right? And then there's things that kind of have these higher elevated sense. And so as you think about this, there are some churches that um, will say there are four things, practices, that they don't call just practices, not even just ordinances. They are sacraments. Something supernatural is happening. Communion, baptism, and marriage are often inside of those. Marriage was de-escalated by the Catholic Church along the way um, for certain reasons. Foot washing is sometimes one of those high, high things that we believe that, um, that some traditions would believe are a part of the, the highest level of sacredness, all right? And so you can see this as a discipline, just a, a liturgical practice that we take. It could be an ordinance, which means it's uncommon, but maybe not supernatural. They're just uh, symbols, or maybe just something above that. We're not sure. At Common Ground, we don't believe in transubstantiation. We don't think this is literally the blood and the flesh of Jesus, um, although there are some people who would believe that. Uh, And so keep in mind, all of that, again, is tied to your sense of where you believe this should stop, 
where on the timeline and what level of holiness you want to attribute to it. So there's a status to be thinking of. Frequency, we don't know. There's evidence. I think you could make a case for weekly. I think you can make a really strong case for every single day. Um, and then in some ways, we're like, what is this meant to do? The heart of this is meant to encourage us on a rhythmic basis. So sometimes when you do something every day, it almost loses its meaning, which is what some people have come to us and asked us about. That just becomes casually something we tack on to the end of the service, which is why we're kind of going to go through a little bit of a fasting season at least and ask God if we maybe de-escalate it to the extent that is too common, and we want to bring more attention to it every single week or once a month doing this way. Um, okay, I promised myself that there would be a hard end cap to this, and I have probably four pages of notes left. This is where this teaching ends, <laughs> um, but I want you to ask yourself, this is, this is what I decided to do. Whatever I didn't cover, I want to encourage you to go and look at it depending on what you want to emphasize. If you want to emphasize the Passover, it's more of a Jewish roots thing, the house church people, the agape meal, right? The Catholic church is more of a supernatural sacrament kind of side of it. Protestants tend to be, depending on if you're high church or low church, you'll, you'll be different on that. Um, and there's all of these things that go around it as to whether or not, um, uh, as to how you would interpret this moment that we're about to practice together. Um, and I want to encourage you, go look it up. Go, go find out ideas. Know that everyone probably has some kind of agenda attached to it. And again, we want to say the, the most essential things are the most essential things and the non-essential are the non-essential. Um, and, and here's my last encouragement. F stay focused on the why. Not the how, not the what, not the how oftens, but remember that all of these things have happened in our history and shaped it. Remember that we all might fall differently in this, but that it is meant for us to stop and say in the middle of our busy weeks, God is here. God is present. God is not just external. We take these elements. They go inside. You are what you eat. Jesus is in you. There's something mysterious and powerful. To understand that we share a life in Christ and with Christ, that our discipleship of Jesus is of a cruciform sense because it is a reminder of the blood and body that was given. Jesus did die on a cross, and thank God he also resurrected. So consider where you're at on all of these different ways. And I wanted to read this last verse on communion because it brings us all the way back to the unity. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry, and I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And so today we have communion presented here up front. I'll go ahead and have the band go ahead and step up. I know I'm pushing us just a little bit. We try to get out of here by 1130. After this, we will dismiss um, and be done for the day. But what we want to do is to symbolically have everyone, instead of going to the stations, come up to this one table. You can grab from the cracker uh, and, and the, um, uh, the, ju the grape juice here. If you um, are, are concerned about some sanitary purposes, go ahead and grab one of these. Um, and I think this one here is gluten-free as well. Um, we have an open table, meaning we don't fence it in. We let you decide whether you are worthy to come to the table. And so I'm going to pray for us as we end today and ask for us to be a unified body around the table of Christ, around the elements that remind us
of the history and future that we're suspended between. Father, thank you so much for rights and ordinances and sacraments and practices and disciplines and rhythms of life that we get to come and say, we might have forgotten, but if all else fails, at least we get to come around the people of God and remember what you've done and remember the body and blood that was given for us on some kind of rhythmic basis. So teach us over this season, Lord. We do want to reflect on our hearts. So God, right now in our hearts and minds, will we just ask you to make our hearts right, to make our relationships right, and that we would gladly come together in this symbolic moment to partake of the blood or the bread and the blood of Christ. We love you, Jesus. And we ask for this all right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and come up. You can form two lines, one on the left and one on the right.